0: Welcome to the EW Game of Thrones weekly podcast finale edition. This is James Hibbard. I'm here with Darren Franich and you know, Darren, I think we could spend the entire podcast just reading off all the names of the characters who were killed last night.
1: Marjorie Terrell, Loris Terrell, The High Sparrow, Mace Terrell, Kevin Lannister, Dario's belief that romantic dreams can come true, my personal dreams of a Lady Stoneheart finale cameo.
0: All of that, all crushed, and even if we just confine the list to series regulars or recurring characters, we lost at least 11. It's the bloodiest and most game-changing finale in the shows history. And, uh, and it all started with that amazing opening sequence in King's Landing, 25 minutes of just this uh, incredible set piece as Cersei, you know, her her plans that she'd been putting into place all season sort of all came together.
1: James, that opening, I'm hard pressed to think of another sequence on the show that has just been Better put together, the music was so different. Um, this perfect little, like, 25-minute mini-episode unto itself, all set to that haunting music that starts off with piano, and then there's the choirs, and then there's the organs, and then there's all the big green Ghostbuster stuff that explodes. I mean, even just, like, the individual shot selection, you know, there were just beautiful visuals in all of this. And just the, we, we sort of begin with Cersei staring out onto the Red Keep, and you may think for a second, okay, well, she's, she's pensive, and she's staring out at what may be her, the end of her journey. And then once everything goes down, you realize that quite the opposite, as you pointed out in your recap. She was sort of a general overlooking the battlefield, pretty confident that she was going to win. And, you know, there was just so much stuff happening. And it just it just it just flew along in a way that because the show usually skips from place to place you don't usually get.
0: If you watch that sequence uh, again, it really does play very differently once you know everything that, that's that's going to happen, and it's so fitting. And it opens with those church bells ringing, and it's like. The announcement of of like a funeral, a funeral not just for these characters, but for the church itself. I mean, the, literally the, the church bell was, was was shot, the you know crushing people as as it came down from the explosion, and everything about it felt very unique in the Thrones universe. I mean, the the tone of it, the pacing, uh, the music, as as you point out, the piano, that kind of ebbs in and ebbs back out again and then ramps up to that children's course as Grandmaster Ma- Pycelle was, like, stabbed to death by, by the gang of Children of the Corn Street urchins. <laughs> Imagine if, if if the story took a different turn and, and the big headline the next day in King's Landing was, Lancel saves the city, but instead... Uh, it was this amazing explosion, this orgy of, of, of green wildfire death that um, took out all of Cersei's enemies uh, all at once.
1: This is, I think, the strength of the kind of storytelling that George R. R. Martin created with the books, and it's something the show has really clued into, that, you know, at a certain point, everything kind of becomes Chekhov's gun, you know, so, like, I mean, anything that has ever been mentioned at any point in this series may come back around, and, you know, I just, I love the fact that this wildfire, which we already saw used quite spectacularly going on four seasons ago, and which, which we've always kind of had some inkling was still there, I mean, to... To bring that back was just so great. I also loved how, I mean, I, I think that I had said that, like, you know, Grandmaster Maester Pycelle was probably not going to last very long. But just, you know, for him to exit in that fashion, I thought was just so darkly comic in a way. I I, I have to say, so, you know, the actor, of course, who plays Picel is the great Julian Glover, one of the few people to play a bad guy. I think the only person to play a bad guy in both a Star Wars and an Indiana Jones. And when he died, I turned to my girlfriend and said, he has chosen... Poorly. Oh, there you go. She she did not find that remotely amusing. So, but I found it hilarious. I mean that 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 death was crazy. To go to your point though, James. I mean, Lancel, a character who I've always despised in every you know when he was a kind of younger imitation JB, and then when he became a sort of you know shaved head zealot the nature of the sequence was such that because he was essentially crippled and he was tr- you know we we were with him at every second of that last crawl trying to get there to save the city it was so crazy that in that moment you sort of feel like excited for him and you are kind of like oh like Lance so like Please do this. Like, you know, make this the one good thing that you've done in, in your life. And then that shot of him, just the flames coming to claim him. I mean, just the visual storytelling here was so fantastic. Um, I'd be kind of intrigued to know James. I mean, The most tragic loss in that wildfire explosion was definitely Marjorie Terrell. I mean, like, uh, you know, on the show, she's been such a big, major character in a way that in the books, because she was never really a centric character, you you, you never quite felt that. I mean, she's been so great on the show in that last moment, going back and and, and rewatching it she kind of knows what's coming and that she runs to her brother. Ever since she came in in season two, she has really just captivated a lot of attention on the show and so much attention within King's Landing itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, the story of is, is is such a tragedy because she had all the wits necessary to survive and thrive in this world. And every single time she kept being paired with a doomed man. She was paired with Renly, then she was paired with Joffrey, then she was paired with Tommen, and then in a way, although not romantically or at least, you know, so we hope, uh, you know, she was paired with the High Sparrow. She kept on having to become attached to these different powerful men who were ultimately doomed. And the first three times, she was able to sort of skip away from their downfall and uh, continue unscathed. But this time, I mean, she was literally trapped. I mean, she was literally trapped in the same building with him and very frustrated that she could not escape. And what's interesting, when you rewatch that sequence, you know, as soon as she sits down in there, the, one of the first thing she does is, is start looking around to see who's there. And, and so that beat uh, with her character growing increasingly worried Uh, is established from, you know, one of the first shots of her.
1: To, To your point, even this idea that she was always, by the nature of the culture she was in, always kind of had to be attached to these men, very often men who were themselves quite weak in a lot of different ways. And she was very much like the powerful person who kind of had to operate in the shadows next to them. Even thinking about the fact that, you know, the one relationship in her life that to me always felt very genuine, was the relationship with her brother, and her brother who, you know, was from the exterior, the powerful one, the knight of flowers, this very romantic fantasy figure, the idea that so much of what she did this season was her kind of trying to rescue him, and her trying to do everything to ensure that he would be okay, this episode really felt like in a lot of ways we were sweeping aside a lot of chess pieces and maybe even you know deep down getting back around to the drama the show has always been focused on in terms of Lannister and Stark and Targaryen and these sort of greater families and how they will face off but you know the the very careful Storytelling that really defined marjorie's story arc i'm I'm really going to miss that and upon rewatching, I noticed that um in that incredible sort of wildfire explosion of just green nightmare fuel, we, we see the High Sparrow just get blown to pieces, thankfully. I you know Jonathan Price, an, an actor I love, that was just a character that I totally despised for two years. So happy to see him gone.
0: It was interesting because you, know, you watch the online coverage leading up to the finale, and, and a lot of sites had pieced together that Cersei might use wildfire to take out the High Sparrow. But uh, for the most part, people did not predict Marju would die. And I don't think anyone thought that Tommen would kill himself. They thought, you know, he might die some other way. But to just have this attitude of, ah, screw it. I'm I'm so done with this whole storyline that I am in. I have made nothing but terrible decisions. I am not cut out for this. My wife is dead. My mom hates me. I'm just leaping out this window. And what's so... Interesting about the way that was shot and done is the one thing Tommen has never been is decisive He's always been so indecisive and this is one case where he's just like nope I now know exactly what to do. I am going to kill myself and I'm and and I'm out of here
1: That shot was incredible that that honestly might be my favorite shot ever in Game of Thrones And like I'm saying that hyper like very hyperbolically right now Give me two days to kind of qualify it but watching it I mean There's so much happening. The fact that that shot really pays off the kind of recurring visual in the opening sequence of Cersei and Tommen staring all the way across King's Landing at the sept. And the fact that, you know, we see him kind of walk off screen
0: and the camera holds the blank space of the window, which is which, by the way, I've never seen this show do it, do a shot like that, where it just holds a, a blank space with no actors in it. You know, after an actor has left a shot and you don't know why, you don't know what it's waiting for, and the camera is anticipating what's going to happen and waiting for him to come back.
1: To me, it was so intensely cinematic. The fact that as it is holding that shot and holding that visual of the window, you just hear him very quietly on the soundtrack set down his crown, which even that is such a tragic, beautiful moment, if you think about it. I mean, here is someone who was by no means born to be king, was king from a moment when he was way too young to really understand what it all meant. I mean, just, you know, in a way that probably nobody else in his immediate family can understand, just wanted to be a good king, and just, you know, for him to be setting down that crown, and then, as you say, James, the one truly decisive moment of his life stepping up to the window, not really pausing at all, just the way he kind of lets go as he falls is so striking to me. This show does not miss a trick, and full credit to the writers and to uh, you know the director, uh, Miguel Sapochnik, who killed it again this week. I mean, obviously, he's not being pushed, but very indirectly... He was pushed out that window by the actions of his mother. And it's so striking to me that here in the season six finale, that almost feels like a callback all the way back to Bran being pushed out of the window in in the premiere. And just, you know, the sadness of that and just the way in which when all of this started, Cersei's... One big thing was, you know, rescuing her her children, being focused on her children, and the fact that where she's at now, her actions have just, you know, indirectly and ultimately quite directly led all of her children to be dead. I mean, just fascinating. I, Lena Headey in this episode, James, this this was like the Emmy reel, like one scene after another.
0: <laughs> yeah, she keeps being nominated. She hasn't won. She really deserves to win. And I, and as I, I've said before, I think her deserving to win goes all the way back to season one. She she's been having terrific scenes every single year and you know it's it's uh obviously a tough category but uh hopefully she'll pull it out this season
1: Lena Headey is someone who, in a way, she's been lucky. She, she's been on the show since the beginning. But, you know, that also means that anyone who's been on the show since the beginning has had at least one or two seasons where their storyline hasn't necessarily been front and center. And just thinking about looking at her face in this episode, thinking about the journey she's been on since the, since the last season finale, you just had this sense that, like, you know, this is someone where it's not just her taking revenge on a single person or on a group of people, you know, yes, she was taking out the high Sparrow and all his flock. Yes. She was taking out Marjorie and as many Tyrells as she could, but there's just this sense of like, she was taking revenge on everyone, like taking revenge on all of King's landing and on just all of society. And just, you know, she played that so well. I was very intrigued James, because in your interview with uh, the great Lena Headey, she was saying that originally that scene with Septa unella was even crazier.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to find out what it, was because they, you know, she said, yeah, originally the scene with Septa and Ella that her fate was even worse and they couldn't do it. And, but it's like, wow, what can't you do on this show? So that does raise the, raise a question of, um, of what that could have been And that scene. Boy, was that some dark victory there? I mean, here you have a scene in which you have a, strong female character at her moment of triumph, taking out her enemies. Yet you have her, you know, put this other woman tied to a stone slab to be like, you know, tortured and, you know, suffer all s- forms of assault. You could probably imagine at the hands of the mountain. And it's like, wait, it's, it's so very classic game of Thrones because it's like, wait, are we cheering for Cersei? Are we happy? This is happening. Yes. Septon is like this cruel, sadistic person who's probably responsible for other people dying, but at the same time, you know, do we actually want this to be happening? You know, so it really sort of puts you in this awkward, moralistic position as a show tends to do where she's sort of our Tony Soprano. She's our Walter White. She's our Michael Corleone where we're just like, Rooting for this person despite the fact they are doing truly horrible things.
1: I love that comparison so much. And to me, it, it's especially apt because this moment of her triumph reminds me so much of Walter White. At the end of season four of Breaking Bad, I mean, like season four was just this entire like 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 long chess match between him and Gus Fring, and all along, you know, you're kind of fundamentally on Walt's side because no matter what else he's done, he's he's our guy, he's our kind of like centric character, and you know, this season maybe just because the high Sparrow was so obnoxious, you were fundamentally kind of on Cersei's side, and and much like Walter White, she could always kind of claim, well, you know, I, I'm doing this for my family. I mean, you know whatever else I'm doing this for, I'm doing it for the safety and, and and security of the Lannisters and of the fake Baratheons and everything. To go from that, much like with, with Walter White, this moment of just explosive vengeance, and immediately you're just kind of like, oh, maybe I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> Why don't we head up to... Uh, the twins, and talk a little bit about what went down with the family Frey uh, this week. We have a couple other rulers to get to, but I do want to just kind of quickly address this because I, I thought that we jumped kind of straight from all this stuff happening in King's Landing up to Walder Frey and Jamie Lannister having this sort of great back and forth, um, which, you know, easily kind of overlooked, I think, given all the crazy stuff that happened in the episode. But I did like how there was this great moment between them of, you know, Walder uh, just sort of saying, oh, you know, we're both Kingslayers and, you know, we both kind of transcended the bounds of honor and, and look at us, here we are, like we're doing just fine. And I, what what I loved about that scene was first of all that, you know, Jamie immediately sort of rebutted him in a way that felt very Tywin Lannister to me. I mean, so much of the storytelling this season in a way has focused more and more on how a lot of this younger generation is becoming, to a certain extent, the older generation that's, that's passed on or that was forcibly killed over the last few seasons. But Walder Frey, who's just been such a grotesque figure for so long in, in a fabulous fashion, the way he exited was so unexpected. I mean, in, in the midst of so many other things happening in this episode, that was not something that I expected to happen.
0: It was really disturbing, kind of, this idea of. Of, I, for her, you have Arya as the uh, servant girl. This is another reason it's fun to go back and rewatch this episode because she gives Jamie this look, and then she gives him another moment, this like kind of smile, and it's like, wait, is Arya like being flirtatious with Jamie Lannister? Because that 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 idea alone is just kind of mind blowing. And then you have this amazing reveal uh, where she has killed his two sons. Baked them into his food, fed them to him, and then kills him. And you, you know, I I tend to be a bit of a pragmatist. So at first, my mind is going towards a lot of logistics. Like, Wait, how did she pull that off? Does Ari even have baking skills? You know, what about the rest of the kitchen staff? You know, I mean, there's a lot of those thoughts that go through my head, which is annoying, I know, but but I can't help the way my brain works on this sometimes.
1: I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we knew that she was learning cool faceless ninja lessons, but what we didn't know, James, was that in, in Faceless Man HQ, they have a very active kitchen staff. She was learning all kinds of exciting revenge baking methods uh, over the last two seasons. <laughs> It
0: was also just really dark. I mean, and we continue to see this with Arya, that her killing with each one becomes a little bit more dark, a little more twisted. And it's like, at first we're going, yay. And then we're going, yay. And then we're kind of going, yay? You know? <laughs> and at the same time, you have this amazing line that she says in there. She says... I wanted the last face you see to be a Stark, which is a clear echo of what Cersei uh, tells Septa and Ella. So you have, first you have Arya empathizing with the fictional version of of Cersei in in that, uh, in the play scene, you know, several episodes back. And now you have her unknowingly saying a very similar phrase in a very similar situation to... Uh, Walder Frey, and it makes you wonder when they do eventually meet up, are they going to be as antagonistic as we've always suspected? Or maybe not, you know, because, you know, in, in some ways she's starting to become a little bit like l- like Cersei herself.
1: After last night's episode, what I was imagining was, I mean, if they ever do meet up, one of two things happens. One is exactly what you're kind of describing, James, that there is this sort of mutual understanding that in this way, and obviously Arya in a, perhaps, to a perhaps lesser extent, but maybe to a greater extent, you know, they, they have both been made into slightly monstrous versions of themselves by everything that has happened to them and everything that they've done. The other possibility is that this could be a classic kind of scenario where they both walk into a room and neither of them walks out. You know what I mean? Like there's just, it's unclear to me what happy ending there is for Cersei, uh, certainly, because happiness doesn't seem to really factor into her journey forward anymore. But, I mean, even for, for Arya, I mean, th- there is the the, the classic quote, and I forget where it comes from, about, you know, whenever you set out on a mission of vengeance, you should dig two graves. In Arya's case, that would be many, many more graves, uh, since she has many, many more people to, uh, to avenge herself and her family upon. That smile she gave at the end, this has been a great season for spooky smiles, because it also felt, in a way, to me like an echo of that fantastic smile that Sansa had in last week's episode as she was kind of walking away from Ramsay Bolton being mauled and and, and eaten to death by his dogs. Even the people on this show without necessarily getting good and evil about it. The people who are fundamentally kind of on our side or are, are, are on the side that we want to root for, no one is getting away clean from any of this stuff. And, you know, there is just this strange sense that even as the people that we fundamentally like are beginning to counterattack, those counterattacks are making them into much different people. I appreciated that. I, I, I will say, I mean, some people online have, have been talking about this. The rate of travel this season has been all over the map in a way that I really think is good. I love the books so much. The books, if you want kind of geographical reality, then, you know, the books will have a character just gradually traveling across Westeros for a thousand pages. I kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, the show now is telling its narrative in such a way that Arya can leave one continent uh, in episode eight and already be, you know, way over on this side of Westeros in episode 10.
0: Or, you know, even more extreme, Varys goes from marine to Dorn and then back to Marine again, you know, in in like the space of uh, two episodes. But as much as a pragmatist as I am about, you know, logistical things, that doesn't bother me at all, because to me, that's just editing. That's that is we're focusing on the aspects of each story that are the most interesting. And these things are not all playing out in real time at the same time. And I accept that as as a viewer. I don't want to see somebody's uh really long travel scenes, especially since I think feel like we got a lot of that in the first few seasons when they were trying to be more strict about that um, in terms of keeping the storylines roughly going at the same time. Now I just accept that each time I change locations, I'm going into a place, and picking up that particular story at the most interesting point.
1: Who was excited during the opening credits scene when we finally saw that that our, our, our beloved snake tower in Dorne made a reappearance after so many episodes away?
0: The last time we saw Dorne was in the season premiere and we just saw a bunch of characters get killed. Now we cut back to Dorne in the uh, season finale, and it's just the Sand Snakes getting insulted. So, I mean, this has been, you know, for 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 the anti Dorne crowd, uh, I, I think these two dashes of Dorne in this season have been very satisfying.
1: I very much appreciate how the show is very much owning the kind of, uh, shall we say, narrative mistakes that were made around the Sand Snakes. I also love how, again, this is how I know that even though the show has moved beyond the books, it still feels... Like the show is very clued into what makes George R. R. Martin's storytelling so interesting because, with the Tyrells, I mean, in any kind of straightforward fantasy story or any kind of straightforward drama. You know, you would expect someone like Marjorie or someone like Loras, these sort of beautiful, younger, multi-layered, very romantic uh, personalities, that they would be sort of the last people left standing for the Terrell family. And instead, I just love how, I mean, Diana Rigg, who just every time just nails every line out of the park, I love that she is sort of the last remnant of the Terrell dynasty. She's not in it for anything now. She she, she has no, I mean, she, she herself has just kind of said like, this isn't about survival. This isn't about, you know, Highgarden, you know, there's sort of nothing left now. All that is left for me, me, this sort of person who for so long has really symbolized a kind of older, very political form of warfare. Now she's kind of going full Dothraki and I very much appreciated that. Um, but I, I, I will say, I mean, like people who who read the books probably very much appreciated too. This scene, really paid off in a big way. It's something from the Dorne subplot that was mostly cut out from the books because that, that last line that Varys says what do we have to offer you, you know, what's coming, fire and blood that's kind of, you know, one of the great memorable lines from, from A Feast for Crows and I'm, I'm glad that they kind of brought that back uh, and, you know, per, perhaps kind of glad that uh, certain subplots which we lost along the way, maybe we had to lose them, but I'm, I'm very intrigued by the, 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 the continuance of Danny's ability to build up, all of these sort of misfits, you know, the, the Sand Snakes and the remainder of uh, of the Tyrells, they're all kind of on the side of uh, of the Dragon Lady now, which I find really, really interesting.
0: You look at w- the force that Dany has, and it's almost ridiculous. I mean, she's got the Dothraki, she's got the Unsullied, she's got the Ironborn, she's got the Tyrells, you know, she's got Dorne, you know, she's got, oh, oh, and, you know, three dragons. I mean, it's, and whereas Cersei has she has like a gang of street kids i mean that's like i don't see how this is even a fight at this point so the, the the one thing that could sidetrack danny is Uron is out there presumably with a fleet of ships so you know that could end up uh you know delaying her her happy landing in westeros
1: James, we've been dancing around it enough. Uh, Let's leave Dorne behind, hopefully for a very long time. Let's head up north, because, uh, boy, I I was sort of... I kind of thought we were at the emotional peak of the episode after all the horrors down in King's Landing. And then we got another one of my favorite kinds of scenes, which is people sort of, like, cheering and forcing Jon Snow to take authority that he maybe didn't actually want. I think
0: Jon Snow is okay with this authority. This is what could have been his birthright if he was a Stark. And he was always the outcast growing up. At one point, Stannis tempted him with Winterfell, and he turned it down uh, because it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right way to get it. And now he's got it. And in that scene, it just seemed like he was almost flabbergasted by the acceptance that he was receiving from all the Bannermen. I mean, he sort of looks down at Sansa, like, "Can you believe this? Can you believe this is happening?" So, I actually felt that was that was a very uplifting scene. I I, I really like that.
1: I totally agree with you. You know, in an episode that very often left me breathless in the bad way, like just gasping with shock. That was a scene that really gave me all those kind of uh, minute forty-two of Friday Night Lights feels. Um, but I will say. I kind of think Sansa would have been a better person to be in charge. Now, hear me out. Hear me out. I'm not just saying this because, um, you know, I, I, I get why Jon Snow, he is this sort of the noble hero. He is the warrior. He's the person who has led the North in this incredible uprising. Everyone's kind of saying that he's the one who avenged the Red Wedding. That's all fair. But... You know, left overlooked in all of this is that Jon Snow's big plan to defeat Ramsay was maybe not the the best plan, nor nor was it even a plan that he followed for very long. The only way that that battle was won was because Sansa was doing some classic power isn't just about the sword, power is also about the pen, and power is about, you know, how do you make alliances and how do you wield this? So I'm intrigued because I kind of thought that's where... This was leading, and as much as I'm on board with with the cheering aspect of kind of finally giving the bastard Jon Snow his own throne, I'm a little miffed only because it feels like Sansa if she hasn't learned how to be a great military lord, she has learned how to be a lord. And she has learned in, in sometimes awful ways and just by virtue of being so close to so many awful people, she has kind of learned how the Game of Thrones is played. And so I'd intrigued trying to know, how did you kind of read that last look from her to Littlefinger? Because I, I've kind of gone back and forth on what it means, what it means for them.
0: I f- kind of felt like... It was like a high school classroom, and she's like the popular girl, and he's like the bad boy in the back of the class kind of smirking and, and rolling his eyes at what the teacher's saying, and she's like kind of into that. That was kind of what I took from that.
1: The look on his face, it seemed to be kind of one of defeat or or maybe one of confusion. You know, it seemed like he really wanted Sansa to stand up in that moment and declare that, you know, she was the rightful heir. I don't know, just all this stuff sort of circulating underneath a scene that had lots of great big moments. I mean, you know, it hardly even needs to be said that Kid Mormont is now the best character on the show and her incredible kind of... Just one on one to each of the lords of the north, just saying, you know, you you pansies like weren't here for anything. Like I'm, I'm like 13 years old and I'm and I'm already like more of a man than like any of you guys are. I I I very much enjoyed all of that stuff.
0: I'm gonna say something that a lot of people are gonna disagree with, probably, but the Lady Mormont thing this time, she spoke up. It felt a little bit like the precocious kid. In, that you see in movies that talks exactly li- like <laughs> an adult, I didn't entirely buy it this time, I, I, I have to say.
1: I'm with you only to the extent that what really works on this show for me and what I think really defines the storytelling of this whole saga is that every character has another side to them and you know if they seem heroic then there is a side to them that is less heroic and if they seem as Jaime and Cersei and so many people did at the beginning if they seem obviously villainous there is another if not necessarily heroic then certainly uh, more compelling side to them. There is, there is, there is some wound that, that they have, that they were given that has made them that way. And you know, much as we do treasure uh, Kid Mormont and all of her, you know, awesome you know, badass sayings there is a side to her that she is just sort of she is what she says she is and, and you know, maybe that's just kind of the nature of Mormont's.
0: Or maybe that's just the nature of being, being, being 10 years old too, you know.
1: This, this to me is also the frustration of that scene and I don't think it's a frustration with storytelling so much as it is a frustration that we're supposed to have because of the storytelling, if that makes any sense. Because I I I, I do just feel as if, you know, she represents the kind of Jon Snow aspect of the North that is very straightforward. It, it says what it means. It does what it says. There is a great obvious nemesis, the White Walkers, who everyone needs to unite against. And... You know that story. You know that that aspect of the show to me is just less exciting than the aspect of the show represented by Littlefinger or by the kind of person that Sansa has become. Where you know, even if there is, you know, even if we factor in the White Walkers, there is still kind of more to consider, and there is more going on than just sort of everybody uniting and cheering and you know announcing that well, well, the last time we had a King of the North, that didn't turn out well, but this time, this time we're definitely gonna. This time, this King of the North will definitely Definitely be, uh, be, be good for us. So I, I think there, there was a lot under that scene. I, I'm, I'm sort of with you, James, but I, I think that it was a frustration we were meant to have, if that makes any sense.
0: Before we go, we have to talk about the big revelation. It's a, it's, it's a revelation that we all suspected was coming. Uh, if you spend any time in the Internet at all, uh, you probably already knew it was coming. But it was still a big deal that it finally happened. And that, of course, is the returning to the Tower of Joy.
1: Yes, we got to the Tower of Joy at long last. Uh, the, the The actor who uncannily looks like young Sean Bean finally found his sister uh, mid-dying in childbirth. One of the things that I found interesting about this scene, James, is that it finally does establish Jon Snow... Not the son of Ned Stark. In fact, the in fact his nephew. The ever tangled lines of of, of of secession in Westeros have become even more tangled. Um, but as you put it out, there was still a certain amount of frustration and potential fan theorizing to be had here because we definitely know who his mother is, but in the sort of classic who is Eric Cartman's father way, it sort of potentially left us with another question. His dad is definitely Rhaegar, right? Is it even worth like further theorizing on that point? You know,
0: it's only because out of an abundance of caution with this show that if something isn't explicitly told to you and you also have the whispering where some parts of what she's saying are inaudible So you're left to wonder, wait, what's being held back there and why? But at the same time, yeah, he's got to be Rhaegar Targaryen's kid. I mean, that's the only thing that we think makes sense. At the same time, I am still using like bracketed supposedly and we think and presumably in my coverage just because... I don't wanna you know, be totally definitive about something and then next year it's like, oh, okay, we were completely wrong the entire time.
1: Two things that I wanna kinda dig into here uh, because it gets into a couple things that we've talked about a lot and, and that I always appreciate. Uh, first of all, uh, even though I'm still not quite sure what the Three-Eyed Raven is, I'm glad that we got final confirmation that Bran is now the Three-Eyed Raven. I'm, I'm glad that that's, we, we know that. We also know a, a lot of people have, have been sort of chatting about this this season yeah. <laughs> He does not, in fact, need to be in the Three-Eyed Raven's, like, tree throne of horror way up north to access his uh, Three-Eyed Raven powers. He can do it from any of the Weirwoods, which, you know, as many people have theorized, that that means that, you know, he can kind of access that uh, from the great tree inside of Winterfell. Good to know all that information. What this has all been building up to is Bran is, in fact, the kind of uh, first internet entrepreneur of uh, Westeros. Uh, he has he has access to all the information. Um, But it is also, you know, we sort of left off with Bran and Mira, You know, after many seasons of trudging up north, they are almost done trudging back down south. Uh, We said goodbye to Uncle Benjen again. But I, I was also just so struck by the fact that, you know, on one hand, the revelation about Jon Snow doesn't really mean anything for the immediate future. And it's it's almost strange that that is kind of what Bran returned to. And yet, on the other hand, you know, the potential ramifications of that information are huge. I mean, the fact that Bran is within spitting distance of Castle Black, that could really mean a lot. So we sort of thought this was something that we were going to learn earlier in the season. And, you know, we didn't. And that was kind of frustrating. But it is interesting. It's like, you know, now one kind of long, simmering bomb Bomb has gone off in King's Landing, but now there's this other sort of more metaphorical bomb that may go off at, at some point that may affect our characters in a certain way. So I was I, I was happy with it ultimately, even though it was it, it was a long delayed revelation. But uh, how did you kind of feel about uh, where we kind of left off with with Bran and with the uh, Tower of Joy sequence?
0: It was a compelling choice that they used that to cut to. Uh, Jon Snow being hailed as, as King of the North because it's at this moment of triumph for, for Jon Snow, and they're all excited because he is now has retaken Winterfell and he's Ned Stark's son. And we just learned that he's not Ned Stark's son at all. So his claim to Winterfell is actually pretty tenuous, especially compared to Sansa's now. But his claim on the Iron Throne, which is something that he had never even considered, is actually really strong. Uh, you know the line I put in the recap was you know it's sort of like becoming manager of an Apple store and then finding out that your dad is like Steve Jobs. You know it's like suddenly your your entire future and your relationship with this company is is, is like completely changed.
1: The revelation that he is not quite on the family tree line where we thought he was could mean a lot of different things. I mean it, it definitely did not seem coincidental that. We discovered this information uh, not that long, at, uh, you know, r- right around the same moment when Danny was kind of leaving poor Dario behind. She was leaving him behind to kind of clear the way for her to potentially use her current unmarried status as a way to kind of leverage greater power in Westeros. I mean, James, the Targaryens are. They do not have any qualms about marrying within their own family. <laughs> right.
0: But will. Danny and John have any qualms uh, if that is even a subject of conversation that eventually happens or not. And actually, with that, that's actually a good place to stop here or rather pause because this isn't going to be our final Game of Thrones weekly podcast for the season. We're going to do another one. We're going to do a second podcast uh, this week, later this week, where we get into a bunch of other questions that we didn't get time to address uh, while hitting the super size finale. We have uh, reader questions. We have a bunch of reader questions that we want to get into. Uh, we want to talk about the season as a whole, too, which were uh, the episodes and performances that we like the best and least. And we want to speculate a bit about season seven. I don't think we've ever had a season a finale that so clearly suggested where things are going into the next season. So I think we can have a lot of fun speculating about that.
1: Anybody who still has any questions or any comments, or if you feel very strongly about certain things that happened this year, you know, send questions, you can send them to James, at James Hibbert on Twitter, I'm at Darren Franich, or you can email us if you have a a particularly long question, and frankly there are only long questions when it comes to Game of Thrones, email us at gotpodcast at ew.com, and while you're at it, you can also email us your answer for this week's trivia question. Yes, it's time for our favorite segment, uh, wherein I ask a question about Game of Thrones. James, tell the people what they win this week. You will
0: get a Risk board game that is Game of Thrones themes. And fun fact, on the Battle of the Bastards set, they are actually playing Risk in between takes, so... Uh, you too, can be like a Game of Thrones extra.
1: Uh, last week's trivia question, we asked you, who were the killers that Ramsay Bolton killed? We asked for four, people sent in more. You got your uh, Osha, you got your Roose Bolton, you got your One-One, you got your Dagmer and the rest of the Ironborn, who, uh, you got your Master Torturer and, and the men who, who, who pursued Theon in Season 3, got your Iron Islanders in Season 4, got your men of Stannis' army who attacked Winterfell in Season 5. So many people Ramsay Bolton killed... Fortunately, he himself is now dead. This week's trivia question. When this show began, you had all the great houses of Westeros. You got your Stark, got your Tully, got your Tyrell, Martell, Lannister, Baratheon, Greyjoy. This week's trivia question is, list the current lords of any of those families. List which of those current lords have an immediate next of kin. And by immediate, We're talking son or daughter who could take over control of the family if the current Lord were to die. Uh, Send the complete list to gotpodcastaw.com. We'll do a random drawing of all the correct answers, and uh, the winner will get a very special edition of Risk, Game of Thrones themed. A, A special thank you to the HBO store. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, leave us a rating, let us know what you think. And uh, yes, uh, check back in later this week. There'll be one more special episode of the EW Game of Thrones weekly podcast. We'll do questions, we'll do theories, we'll do predictions, we'll do likes, dislikes, hopes and dreams. Uh, We're excited to talk more Game of Thrones later this week. The savings keep stacking up at Lumber Liquidators Summer Stackout Sale. Choose from the best selection of woodlook waterproof flooring, like a Vela Woodlook tile. It's an extra 20% off with coupon. All Dream Home X2O Water Resistant Laminate is on sale. Get pre-finished hardwood from $149, including $1 off per square foot on Bellawood. Plus overstock, small lots, and more from just $0.59 cents at your local store. And special financing. Hurry, stack up the savings at Lumber
0: Liquidators today.